Jesus, only Jesus, I think we could probably uh, just get out early and go get lunch. Um, last week was a hard week. It was a tough passage, wasn't it, for those of you guys who were here? It's, the author of Hebrews is warning uh, his audience um, of the fact that there will be those who appear to have faith and, and then shrink away. And in the last part of that verse passage, the last verse, uh, Hebrews 10, 39, we learn of two groups of people, those who shrink back and are destroyed, and those who have faith and preserve their souls. And at the end of a difficult passage, the author of Hebrews encourages his audience with these words, Hebrews 10, 39, <clears throat> but we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The stakes are as high as stakes can get. We're talking about life and death being destroyed or preserving our souls. And the difference is faith. So the question becomes, what does it mean to have faith? Faith that preserves my soul. What kind of faith preserves our souls? There's no shortage of context in which the word faith is used, and there's no shortage of proposed meaning uh, of faith. If you are a football fan uh, and you happen to like a football team that is housed in this state, a little further south in New Orleans, You're familiar with bumper stickers and all sorts of stuff that has what word on it? Faith, right? Uh, I was always a little confused because it never really seemed to work out that well for a long time. Um, And I think we can all agree that uh, what the author of Hebrews is talking about uh, is a little different than faith in how Drew Brees is going to do from Sunday to Sunday. Or if you take it to the context of popular music or music that used to be popular, if you're around in the late 80s, early 90s, you remember the Reverend George Michael's song, Faith. Uh, Not a very appropriate song, but this chorus has been ringing in my head, and I'm sorry it's going to be ringing in yours this week. Uh, My kids are starting to sing it. I feel like I've been a bad influence. But the chorus goes something like this, because I got to have faith. I got to have faith. Yes, I've got to have faith, faith, faith. I've got to have faith, faith, faith. As if saying faith over and over and over again is going to somehow make it appear. Um, But I think that we can all agree the author of Hebrews is thinking about a little something different than what uh, George Michael was singing about. Because at the end of the day, when you get to the end of the song, you're like, I guess it's faith and faith? The author of Hebrews is talking about something different. So what is the author of Hebrews, talking about how does he define faith? Well, he anticipates the question. Clearly, if he's going to say you either shrink back and are destroyed or you have faith and preserve your souls, he's going to know, his readers are going to know, well, what does that mean? <laughs> what does faith mean? And in Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, he tries to drive it into our hearts, into our minds. Here's what faith means. In Hebrews 11, 1, he gives us The nutshell version here, if I'm going to boil it all down, as basic as I can make it, here's what faith is. That's Hebrews 11.1. And Hebrews 11.2 and 3 gives us examples or pictures. For those of you who like pictures more than words, he's going to give you two pictures of faith. 
Okay, so he's going to boil it down, make it simple for us in Hebrews 11.1, 1, and then give us two examples or pictures of faith. He really wants us to understand what this faith is that will preserve our souls. So let's look at Hebrews 11.1, 1, the essence of faith, or the boiled down version of faith, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1, 1, the first and second parts are really two ways of saying the same thing because faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Saying the same thing. The words translated assurance and conviction both have legal overtones and that gets me excited because I'm a lawyer and I'm into that sort of thing. I like the legal system sometimes. Uh, so the term translated assurance has the connotation of a guarantee of ownership or entitlement. And we all experience this type of assurance. Just think of your car that is sitting in the parking lot. Why are you okay with leaving your car there and coming in here, other than the fact you have the doors locked? Well, probably some of you don't. But why are you not concerned with me walking out with you to your car after church and saying, actually, give me the keys. This is my car now. Well, you have this thing called a certificate of title, right? And this certificate of title has your name and says, this person owns this car. So all you have to do is show me that piece of paper and I have to walk away. The argument's over. This is the type of certainty, certainty of legal ownership. And we see this in our culture and our society. The term translated conviction also has a legal analogy. It means the act of presenting evidence for the truth of a position. And here we can see, uh, envision a courtroom where day after day the evidence has been presented on both sides of the case exhaustively uh, to the point where it's clear to the judge and to the jury that only one possible solution is possible. After everything's been presented, no other alternative is possible. This is the type of certainty that the author of Hebrews is talking about. Certainty of legal ownership and certainty of a legal judgment. That's a high degree of certainty. Okay, well, fine. High degree of certainty as to what? Well, that's the second part of the verse. It's things hoped for and things not seen. So we're having a high degree of certainty in things. Okay, but these are things hoped for and things not seen. So what are the things hoped for and things not seen all throughout the pages of your Bible. God's promises. God's promises are the basis of our hope, and we have not yet seen the ultimate fulfillment of those promises. So God's promises are the things hoped for. That's the foundation of our hope, the anchor of our hope, and they're unseen because we haven't seen the final fulfillment of them. So faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. And these things are God's promises. But as you read your Bible, you'll notice God's promises aren't some random assortment of things God says he's going to do. So I'm going to do this. Well, then, oh, yeah, now I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And it's not unrelated dots. All of God's promises all throughout the scriptures are focused and related and centered upon Jesus Christ. We see this all throughout the Bible, but perhaps one of the most clear places is Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.20. He says this, 
For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. For no matter how many promises God has made, throughout the whole Bible, they find their yes in Christ, which means that Christ was the ultimate object. They pointed to Christ, these promises, and they were fulfilled by him. They find their yes in Christ, all the promises pointed to him and are fulfilled by him, that is Christ. Now, admittedly, when you're walking through the Old Testament, sometimes it's harder uh, at some places, like when you get into Leviticus, it, it takes a little work to see Jesus, okay? Leviticus is the great Bible reader killer, okay? If you're going to read through the Bible in the year, you're going well to Leviticus, and you're like, oh, okay, not getting it. But all of the Bible speaks of Christ. So it's a little harder in the Old Testament, but in the book of Hebrews, it's pretty easy, right? And, and so we're going to survey a couple of the key passages. If you have your Bible, I warned you, you're going to be flipping around. We're just going to look at a couple key passages to see the centrality of Christ in all of these promises. Turn to Hebrews 9.12. Hebrews 9.12. Hebrews 9.12. He, that's Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So the promise here is that Christ has taken all of our sin and dealt with it perfectly and secured for us an eternal redemption. Look at Hebrews 9.26. Towards the end there. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of man, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Not only has Christ paid for our sin, all sin, past, present, and future, and not only has he secured for us an eternal redemption, but he's coming back for all of us who are waiting for him. He's coming back. Turn to Hebrews 10.10. For we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He died on the cross once. He died once. He was raised from the grave once. Once, and once for all, all of our sin, past, present, and future, has been taken care of. Look at Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That is, we are perfect because Christ's perfection is credited to our account. So when the Father looks at us, he sees the perfection of Christ, and he can look at us and say, you are my son, you are my daughter, you are holy, you are blameless, You're above reproach. No matter what we've done, no matter what we're doing, no matter what we will do, we are perfect in Christ if Christ's righteousness has been credited to us. We could go on and on, but one more. Bear with me, one more. Hebrews 10, 17, where the author of Hebrews is quoting the prophet Jeremiah, where God said this, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. The promise here is that God when he looks at us, he no longer remembers our sin. Christ dealt with it. He remembers our sins no more. These are the promises. These are the things that are hoped for and the things not seen. These are the things that we're to have certainty in. So putting this all together, the nutshell version, Hebrews 11.1, as simple as faith gets, here it goes. Faith is certainty in God's promises, which all point to 
and are fulfilled by Christ. Faith is certainty in God's promises, which all point to and are fulfilled by Christ. That's the type of faith that will preserve our souls. And I hope after reading those passages, it becomes pretty clear this isn't just an abstract discussion. We're not talking about ideas here. We're talking about life transformational truths that once they get embedded into the core of our being, change everything about the way we view the world around us, about the way we view our lives, the way we view what we have, the way we view our time. Just a couple of examples. If it is real to us, if we have faith in the fact that Christ has paid for all of our sin, that he has secured for us an eternal redemption, and that he's coming back for us so that we can enjoy him forever in the new heaven and new earth, all of a sudden, our present trials, our present sufferings will find a new perspective. Now, that's not to say they're not going to hurt. We're human. They hurt deeply. Jesus wept. Jesus suffered so greatly that he collapsed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, we'll suffer, but all of a sudden, if our, our glorious future becomes real to us, we can properly understand our present and walk by faith with the Lord through it, being transformed to his image. Or this, if it is real to us that the God of all creation approves of us, that he is pleased with us, that he remembers our sin no more, then what does it matter what other people think about us? What, do, what does it really matter if someone rejects us, if they harshly criticize us, if they don't appreciate us, if they say mean things to us, if they do mean things to us? Ultimately, what does it matter if the God of all creation is pleased with us? It's not to say that, that criticism isn't going to hurt. It does. But it won't control us anymore. The gospel, faith in gospel truths are transformative. So we have now the nuts and bolts, the basic definition of faith. And now the author of Hebrews is going to say, okay, just in case you didn't get that, I want to give you a couple examples, a couple of pictures of what it looks like for lives to have faith uh, so you can understand it better. And so now we're going to look at our first example, and it's going to be the saints of the Old Testament, not the football team, but the saints of the Old Testament. Look at me with Hebrews Uh, 11.2, Hebrews 11.2. For by it, that's faith, the people of old received their commendation. Now, the people of old were the Old Testament saints. A commendation essentially means a favorable testimony uh, for someone. Uh, And while it's not expressly stated in the text, God is doing this, giving this testimony. So putting it together, God approved of the Old Testament saints because of faith. And we have to incorporate here the definition of faith that we've already given. Faith is certainty in God's promises that point to and are fulfilled by Christ. So this has some pretty serious implications once we understand that all of God's promises center around the work of Christ, as we saw in uh, Second. Um, so Corinthians 1.20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. We realize that the ultimate object of the faith of the Old Testament saints was none other than Jesus Christ. Now, this may sound a bit strange and a bit like a stretch. 
to you, if this is a new, new concept to you. So I want us to look at a couple of passages that prove this out. So don't take my word for it. I want to show you what the author of Hebrews says, what Paul says, and what Jesus says, okay? I've got the author of Hebrews, Paul, and Jesus on my side, okay? Let's go through Hebrews eleven twenty six through 27, where the author of Hebrews describes Moses' flight from Egypt as faith in Christ expressly. Look at Hebrews eleven twenty six through 27. He, that's Moses, considered the reproach of who? Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So Moses, if you're reading the Exodus account, I promise you, you will not get that. <laughs> hey, the author of Hebrews is helping us see what was really going on. But not only Hebrews, look at what Paul says in Galatians 3.8, where he describes the promise to Abraham of worldwide blessing as a proclamation of the gospel. Look at Galatians 3.8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. This was a promise to Abraham. All of God's promises point to and are fulfilled by Christ. Abraham had faith in this promise. Abraham had, by extension, faith in Christ. Look at Jesus. In John 8, 56, Jesus speaks of Abraham rejoicing in Jesus's ministry. John 8, 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus says that Abraham saw Jesus' day and rejoiced. Now, once you start to look at all of the Bible, all of the Old Testament, as pointing to and being fulfilled by Christ, it will open the scriptures up to you in exciting and life-changing ways. And that's exactly what happened to these two guys who were walking on this road to Emmaus. They were walking and they were reflecting on the fact that Jesus was supposed to be the one who saved Israel, who was their king that would bring about all the fulfillment of all God's promises, and yet he had just died. And in fact, he'd been dead for a while. And so Jesus, resurrected from the grave, kind of joins them on this walk. And they, they're kept from knowing who it is. And they're talking to him. And they're, they're reflecting on the fact, how could this Jesus die? He was supposed to be the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ. And Jesus said this to them, <clears throat> O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And this verse gets me every time. And beginning with Moses, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, and the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, if you're going to have somebody teach you the Bible, Jesus is, is a pretty good one to do it. Okay, He opened their entire... T- and can you just imagine walking there with Jesus saying, oh, you see this? It pointed to me, I fulfilled this. Oh, you you see this? It pointed to me, I fulfilled this. That would have been an amazing walk on the road to Emmaus. So why belabor this point? Well, I do it for this reason. 
For the rest of Hebrews 11, we're going to go slowly and look at these lives where incredible things were done for God. You look at at Noah and the guy against all odds built this huge boat in the middle of nowhere and, and just had to have been ridiculed. Or Abraham, who left everything that he knew to go to a place that he didn't know really much about at all just because he trusted God. Or Moses, who quite reluctantly, if you remember Exodus 3 and 4, went to one of the most powerful men in all the world and said, hey, um, <clears throat> Pharaoh, uh, God told me to tell you to let all your free labor go. So that takes a little bit of faith, okay? Uh, so we're going to look at these stories, and it could be easy to think, well, maybe in the Old Testament, God somehow saved people differently than he does now. But the message is, all of those things were done by faith. By faith, Noah built the boat. By faith, Abraham went to this land he didn't know. By faith, Moses went to Pharaoh. And when we see by faith, now we'll have in our minds a proper definition that it is certainty in God's promises, yes, but all of those promises point to and are fulfilled by Christ. So by extension, all of these Old Testament saints had faith in Christ. And they didn't know everything about Christ. More was revealed in the New Testament. Um, but the plan of salvation has been the same throughout all of eternity by grace through faith in Christ. All right, so the example of the Old Testament saints, we have a boiled down definition, the nutshell example of the Old Testament saints, and then he goes to the second example, and quite shockingly, the example is, well, you and me. I might have thought of some different examples, uh, but the author of Hebrews gives us as an example, look at Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, we understand. Certainly, he's talking about himself and the original audience, but we're included in that we by extension as New Testament saints. And we are included as an example for ourselves before he embarks on all these great examples from the Old Testament. And why? Because we believe that the universe was created by the word of God. Peter O'Brien rightly notes that the universe can be seen, but its origins cannot. And that's why this is a matter of faith. No matter where you come down on how all this stuff came to be that we see, Make no mistake, it's a position of faith because you can't recreate the event. You can't see it. You can have theories, but at the end of the day, you're going to have to have faith in those theories. And the author of Hebrews doesn't get into scientific debate, okay? He's not concerned about modern questions of science, but he does make one thing clear. Everything that has been created was created by God, and God merely spoke it into existence. God created everything. He takes us back to Genesis 1-1 where we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, in the beginning, God created everything. Just think about that for a minute. Now, I am not an expert in astronomy, okay, or was never really 
all that good at science, but I can use Google and I can navigate to the NASA website. <clears throat> and I did that this week. And here are some things I learned on the NASA website about what God created. Okay? Our solar system, our little neighborhood, is composed of our sun, eight planets, and their natural satellites, which means like our moon and other stuff that goes around, uh, and, and asteroids and comets. Okay? That, our, our solar system, it's really big. Okay? It's got our sun, several planets, all this stuff. And our solar system, however, as big as it is, is just in a little suburb, the Orion arm of the Milky Way galaxy. Okay, so we have our solar system is just in an Orion arm of our galaxy. And and here's an exact quote. I love it because it's just so vague and it admits what science can't really fully define. But they say this, NASA says this, and all their scientific expertise, there are most likely billions of other solar systems in our galaxy. Now, that's billions with a B. So there are most likely billions of other solar systems in our galaxy. So we have our little sun and earth and all these things. That's just in a little part of our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. And there's a billions and billions of other of those solar systems in our galaxy. And then I love this sentence. And there are billions of galaxies in the universe. Okay, so we're a solar system. There's billions of solar systems in our galaxy. And then there's billions of galaxies in the universe. In other words, they have no clue how big this creation is. No clue at all. And they've got the biggest toys that can look at it. God's creative work is amazing. Okay, just a couple more facts and then I'll let you go. Okay, so the earth, the sun is about a million times bigger than the earth. Okay, we think the earth is pretty big, right? The sun is a million times bigger than that. And our sun is kind of an average, not too impressive star. Okay, the biggest star, the biggest known star in our galaxy is thought to be a hundred times bigger than our sun and get this, four million times brighter. God's act of creation is beyond what our limited minds can comprehend. And for those of you who aren't scientifically inclined and who have taken a little nap in this last little NASA uh, deal here, we can all relate to being out at night when there's not a lot of light pollution and seeing the stars and being totally blown away. One of the most powerful times for me in my life where this happened was my first trip to South Sudan Um, We were dealing with culture shock. I had no idea what was up or what was down. Uh, We hadn't slept in several days. We had done our first night of ministry. Uh, Tracy, it was when our church was going through the Gospel of John, if you remember. uh, And Tracy preached that night uh, on John 3, uh, where the wind blows where it wills. And and, and as he was preaching that, there was this huge wind. And it, it was just powerful. We were all moved. The Spirit was doing something powerful. Uh, And then the night of ministry ended, uh, and we got back in the car, um, and we were driving back to the compound, which is a little bit misleading. We were more like bouncing on the way back to the compound. uh, And Shannon uh, stopped the car on the edge of a hill, and we all just intuitively got out, uh, and we stood there. There's one thing about South Sudan. There's lots of negatives, but one of the positive is uh, there's no such thing as light pollution, Okay, there's no such thing as light at night unless it comes from a fire. Uh, And so we're looking out there, seeing the stars and seeing the heavens in a way I'd never seen it before. And it was incredibly moving. And one of the team members 
um, just started singing a worship song that we all knew. And we all started singing, and man, we're all bawling at this point. I mean, we're absolutely losing it. Uh, and so we sing for a while uh, when we're not too choked up to sing. Uh, and then at the end, we just stood there in awe and silence of the God of the creation. Well, why, why, is it so, why was it so natural for us to look at the sky and worship? Because of Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. God spoke these billions upon billions upon billions of galaxies into existence. And that's a great, big, awesome God who's worthy of our worship. And the kind of faith that preserves your soul is the kind of faith that can look at the sky and not end your enjoyment of the stars with the stars, but go beyond the stars to the God of the stars who created the stars and worship him. But see, the tragic thing is most of the world doesn't do that. Most of the world sees the stars and is amazed by it, at times dedicate their entire life to learning more about the stars, but their enjoyment of the stars ends with the stars. Faith that preserves our souls extends our enjoyment of all things that the Lord has given and created beyond those things to the God who created those things, the giver of all good gifts. That is the amazing picture of faith we get in 11.3. But that, that's not it. Um, we learn a little bit more about God's act of creation in the last part of Hebrews 11.3. The author says, so that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. God is the only one who can create stuff out of no stuff. God is the only one who can create out of nothing. New York City is an amazing place. I mean, it is breathtaking. If you go to the top of the Empire State Building and you look out and you see building upon building upon building, each one in their own right is amazing. The architecture, uh, the building, the height, just the sheer magnitude of it are impressive in their own right. But when you put them all together, it's almost too much to take in. It's just over, sensory overload. But here's the thing, as amazing as that is, all those buildings were built with stuff that God made. <laughs> we can do some pretty amazing stuff uh, as humans, uh, but we can't create out of nothing. Only God can do that. And faith that preserves our souls worships the God who creates everything with just the mere speaking of his voice out of nothing. So in Hebrews 10.39, we saw two groups of people, those who shrink back and who are destroyed, and those who have faith and preserve their souls. We saw that faith is having certainty in the promises of God, which all point to and are fulfilled by the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then we saw a couple pictures of what that faith looks like in the lives of individuals. We looked at the Old Testament saints, and we heard about Noah and Abraham and Moses, all those guys we're going to hear about for the next several weeks. And then we saw the picture of us, who show this type of faith in our lives when we look at the heavens and worship the God of all creation. So the question this morning is, do you have that type of faith? Do you have certainty in God's promises that point to and are fulfilled by Christ? In other words, are you certain this morning that all of your sin was dealt with 
through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and that his righteousness through the power of his resurrection was placed and credited to you so that you were brought from death to life through the work of Christ. If so, the message of the Bible is that you have the type of faith that will preserve your soul for all of eternity. And the invitation that we've seen all throughout the book and the title of the series is Draw Near. Draw near with that faith, with that confidence to the throne of grace so that you can find help, so you can find grace, so you can find mercy in time of need. That's the invitation. If you have heard this and you've heard the definition of faith, you've seen these examples and you're like, man, I don't have that. Then you probably have the question of where in the world does this faith come from? It all sounds nice, but where does it come from? And Paul makes it crystal clear, just very straightforward, very plain in the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 17. I just want to read that for you. If you've had that question, where does all this come from? Paul makes it clear. He says this, faith comes from hearing. Faith comes from hearing. Well, well, hearing what? And hearing through the word of Christ. Pretty simple, right? Faith comes from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the center focal point of all God's promises. So what is the gospel? The gospel is that all of your sin, past, present, and future, once you believe who Christ is, has been placed upon him, was placed upon his shoulders so that you bear the burden and guilt and debt of your sin no more. And that as Christ was raised again from the grave, raised in power, that his righteousness, his perfection was credited to your account so that the Father can look at you and say, you're my son, you're my daughter, you're holy or blameless, you're above reproach. And salvation is responding to that message with faith and repentance. So where does faith come from? It comes from hearing. What is it? Hearing what? What I just told you. So the invitation is to, if you've never before, believe. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, you are more glorious than we could ever comprehend, and we get glimpses of that as we look upon the stars, as we read back through the scriptures to hear of the men and women of old who, with less revelation than we have, walked by faith in your promises. We see glimpses of that as we gather here this morning and sing about who you are and as we hear your word. Lord, we just cling to, by faith, the promise that your prophet Isaiah declared that your word never returns void, but the proclamation of your word always results, always has the effect that you intended, the purpose for which you intended it. So Lord, your word has been proclaimed this morning, and so I pray that it would bear fruit in our lives. For those of us who know you, I pray that it would encourage us to persevere and draw near to the throne of grace we could find healing and help and hope. And Lord, for those of us in this room who don't know you, Lord, would you by your grace bring life from death? Would you bring salvation? We pray this in Jesus' name.